plan to continue to do so. Uh, I've had a problem uh, with, I guess, a phone line maybe running from the pedestal out on the street into the house. We've tried different phones and so on, and we haven't been able to get rid of the static completely. So if you do hear some static on the line, just listen carefully, and uh, we may have to get the phone company to put a whole new line in so that we have a clear line. Uh, It was better yesterday as we worked on it, but it still uh, could act up. So uh, it isn't on your end for sure this time. It's on our end if we have static. Uh, Also, uh, I have a cell phone booster uh, on top of the house since it's a metal building, and uh, it comes out in my former office uh, here, and I it just I just realized I need to move it more uh, into the center of the building here, where closer to where we're transmitting from, because cell service out in this area is, I guess you'd have to say, poor. Uh, you have to be in the right place and sometimes stand on your head and stick your finger in the other ear in order to get service. So uh, the booster does help, but I need to move it a little closer to what we're doing here. So uh, we may have a couple bugs to work out is what I'm saying, and hopefully we'll get that done this coming week. Not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow is the fast of the fourth month. Uh, I'll probably have more comment on it next Sabbath, the day before, as to the exact meaning of it and what portent it has for us today. It's not just a historical event, but it is a prophetic event as well. (coughs) So more on that later. I suppose everyone's kind of keeping an eye on the news. Uh, I don't comment too often in in the announcement period, but uh, I'm reminded of Amos and the basket of summer fruit. In fact, I went back and read it again this morning. Uh, where he says that he is going to destroy the nation and the church too, for that matter, uh, in the duality of the Scriptures. But uh, he showed Amos a basket of summer fruit and said there'd be no more delay. So are things shaping up? Is this the year that that prophecy comes into (coughs) play? And will we be seeing the beginnings of Uh, the events that will lead to our demise as a nation and all that goes with that. At the same time, the tensions are getting much, much greater between uh, this nation and Russia and China and North Korea and so on. And uh, we're starting to shoot down each other's drones and Syrian planes and various things and making threats. So the saber-rattling in preparation to war that always occurs seems to be uh, speeding up, that we're getting closer to some events, and the financial situation and the retail sales in this country are in serious trouble, and many, many, many uh, stores and chains of stores are shutting down, so uh, it appears that things are getting fairly close. So just... A reminder that we are at the end and we are very near some of these apocalyptic events that are going to occur 
that changes the whole world as we have known it. Uh, this is a time to be aware and to watch because things are getting very, very close to happening, it does appear. I'm not trying to set any dates. I, I refrain from that. But I like to look at the prophecies and see that uh, the nearness of them uh, is there. Christ did say that we should look at the leaves on the trees, and as we see the leaves coming on, we know that spring is near. And as we see the events leading to these end-time things, we know that they also are near. So that analogy is one that he uh, advises us to use and to be aware of the times in which we live and not just go on like the world is going to stay the same as it is, because it is not. And uh, we're very getting very, very near, it appears, to civil war in this country as tempers flare and people get more and more opposed to each other and death threats and assassination of uh, threats are made and we know from Jeremiah that we will have violence in the land ruler against ruler and uh, that is civil war and that is at about the time that the northern army uh, descends on us as well so you can read that story in, I, in Jeremiah 50 and 51 it makes it very clear that there will be internal trouble as well as an external attack and a financial crash as well. So all these things are getting near. They are at the door. Now let's get on with uh, the series that we have embarked upon in the book of Ecclesiastes. We came down to chapter 3 last time uh, and have been seeing the futility of man upon this earth in his temporary condition <coughs> and that uh, given about 70 years to live, we will go through all kinds of trial and trouble and vanity, and uh, yet we cannot preserve this life. We cannot make it something that lasts. Uh, it is intended to be, from the very beginning, temporary, <coughs> and we have to deal with the temporariness of it. And how we deal with that is... Uh, to a great degree, uh, the barometer of when God calls us, how He calls us, whether now or in the great white throne judgment or millennium or wherever. Uh, but we have to deal with life as it is. So let's go to chapter 3, and he encapsulates it here a little bit on the various aspects of life that we have to deal with. He says, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Uh, some of the things we're about to read about here we like, and some of the things we're about to read we don't like. But they are all part of the plan and the purpose that God set up. He has a plan. He has a purpose for mankind. Herbert Armstrong revealed a great deal of information about that to us. And part of it came from this book of Ecclesiastes where it talks about the spirit in man that is different than that of the beast. It's a different type of mind and it interacts with the spirit in man, interacts with the spirit of God. So God has a purpose. And he says there's a time to be born and a time to die. 
you can't get away from either one. If you're born, you're going to die. Uh, that's the way the plan has been set up. It is appointed to all men once to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Maybe you plant a crop in the spring, uh, and then it's time to uh, harvest it and to pluck it up in the fall. There's a time to plant trees, and they last a lot longer than a wheat crop, but there's a time, too, to pluck them up and use them for firewood or whatever. There's even a time to kill and a time to heal. Now, it should become apparent as we read through these that knowing when is the time for each of these, and some of them are inevitable and we have no control over them whatsoever, and yet some of them, <clears throat> we do have a certain amount of control, and we have to come to have the wisdom and understanding to know which is which. And that's what wisdom is all about, is to know, is it a time to kill, or is it a time to pluck up, uh, or, or to be born in a time to die? A time to kill is where I was in verse 3, and a time to heal. How do you know? When is the time to do healing as best as possible? And when is it time to kill? A time to break down, a time to build up. Now, we've seen the church being broken down. There was a time for that. Then there is a time to build up. Well, when is that? It's coming very soon. And people will even say, it isn't time to build up. <clears throat> it isn't time to build the temple, they will say. And yet God says, it will be time. So, it's better to understand wisdom and knowledge in the Scriptures, is it not? So that when God says it's time to build, we're in accord with Him. Uh, and yet we have people who have been going against His plan and His wisdom for the last 30 years when He said it was time to break down the church. Uh, we have those who are going about doing everything they can to build it up and make it what it was before God said it's time to break it down and destroy it. So they've been working at uh, counter uh, measures to God this whole time. Now, we have understood that it was the time to break down, and also a time of repentance. Not a time to say, hey, we're going to do great things. No, God undid the great things that had been done and said, now it's time to repent. But the church as a whole has not seen that, and it is about to go into a time of great trouble and tribulation, and most of the church is going into it. Ninety percent is going into the tribulation. Only ten percent is going to be stirred to come out of it and build the temple. So can we see from that that there is wisdom and understanding and knowledge required is to know when is a time to build up and when is a time to break down. Because those who have been trying to build up are going to see what they've built broken down and those who recognize that it's time to build will come and build. But it will only be a little less than 10% who show up, about a tithe. 
So, knowing when to do which is very, very important. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh. Did you ever laugh at the wrong time when people looked at you funny? Maybe something in your brain was sparked by something that was said, and it may have been serious or it may have even been sad, and yet it struck you funny somehow, and people kind of glanced at you like, what's he laughing at? Uh, we've all probably had that experience and thought, oops, I guess I, I emoted the wrong emotion. But knowing when is which is important. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And we have to recognize which is when and be willing to do the right thing at the right time. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. That again, time to build, put stones together to form an edifice of some kind. Uh, and a time to scatter those and, be, and take down that which was there. Uh, there was a time, Christ said, when the temple that he and the disciples were considering would be taken down and not one stone left upon another. And that scripture applied as an end-time prophecy in Matthew 24 to the end-time church as well when the various individual stones would be taken apart. Now, Christ is the chief cornerstone, he remains, and he's told those other stones that have been scattered to come to the cornerstone and to begin a new building, and he will stir them to come at the right time, Haggai tells us, and that is not very far away. So, we've seen stones being cast down so that not one hardly remains upon another, and now we're going to see them gathered together very shortly. So a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Time to give hugs, a time not to give hugs. A time to embrace what's going on and a time to not embrace what's going on in a larger sense. Uh, do we embrace people trying to preach the gospel around the world as a witness right now? No, it's not a time to embrace that. He tells the end time church and the leadership of it, to leave out the court of the Gentiles, not to go there, but only to work with those who, ha who have been called out, because it is they who will build a temple, which is the next thing to be done, and then after that, go to the whole world and preach the gospel around the world as a witness. So, we see even here in a, a book about human life, uh, things that can easily be applied to what's going on right now in the world and in the church. You've got to know which is when, and what is what, and where is which. So verse 6, there's a time to get and a time to lose. How do you know when it's time to gather or to get, and when it is a time to lose? Uh, takes wisdom. A time to keep and a time to cast away. People, ideas, thoughts, various things. There's a time to keep them, there's a time to get rid of them. A time to rend and a time to sow. People rent their garments when a great tragedy occurred and went into mourning, and they had to know 
when is the time to rend your garments and fast and pray? And the church hasn't recognized that over the last 30 years as a whole. Not at all. They've just tried to go on and get bigger and better and recreate what God saw fit to destroy. It is a time of rending right now. And he tells us to rend our hearts and not our garments. Now is the time to rend our hearts, to turn to God with all our being. And he says we'll find him if we do so right there in Jeremiah. So there's a time to rend and a time to sow, to try to put back together that which has been torn apart. That time in terms of the church is just shortly ahead of us. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. There's one we all face day to day. (laughs) Is it time to open my big fat mouth or is it time to keep my big fat mouth shut? And we have to make wise decisions and then we have to stick with those decisions. But even as I've already said, there's a time to keep silence, not even go to the world. And God has decreed that 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 this period of time is that time. It is not time to preach to the world. It's time to repent ourselves of our self-righteousness and our idolatry, which is what self-righteousness is, putting ourselves and our ideas and our thoughts and our wants ahead of God's law and His way. That's self-righteousness, and it's the same as filthy rags. Only the righteousness of God's law means anything. And that's the righteousness we're to have, is putting him first instead of ourself in idolatry. So the church is told, keep silence during this time. It's a time to be changing our thoughts, our habits, our lives. It's not a time to reach outward. The time to reach outward is ahead. Then is the time to speak. Uh, God even uses that in dealing with Ezekiel. He says, I'm going to shut you up in your house where you can't speak. Wasn't, Ezekiel was a prophet of God. But there was a time there in, I think, 26, where he said he spoke to the people in the morning, and that evening his wife died. Uh, and then, I think it was after that, might have been before, where God said he was going to shut him up in his house and not let him speak for a period of time. So, Knowing when to speak and when to keep silence is a very, very important thing for us to grasp, and certainly in personal relationships as well. A time to love and a time to hate. There's a tough one to figure out. When is it time to hate and when is it time to love? Well, God always loves, but at the same time He hates sin. So he knows which things to hate and which things to love. As humans, we tend to love sin and hate righteousness by nature. So we have to go to God and receive his spirit so that we might go against the nature that we have and love at the right way at the right time and to hate that which is contrary to God's love. And there's also a time of war and a time of peace. That can be said physically in terms of nations. It can be said physically and spiritually in terms of people, more spiritually. We always fight a spiritual warfare, do we not? 
And that's why we're to be armed with the whole armor of God is because there's always a spiritual warfare between us and Satan in our human nature and God's nature. So a time of war is always on us. Now, right now, even right here in this congregation and on this property, it is a time of war. It's a time to win a war for God's purposes and for His uses. And the reason He brought us here, and there are people who are departing from that, and they think they're obeying God, and they're not. So it's a time to war against that attitude and that approach and what they're trying to do to this property. They think they're trying to preserve it for God's purposes, but if they accomplish what they have said in their lawsuit they intend to do, it will divide it, and it will cause pieces of it to be sold off. So it's a time for us to be at war. We're to win this. We're not to lose it. We're to win it. One way or another in God's time, whether immediately or through appeals or, or through God's very hand Himself, this is a time of war. Now he says, when this war is accomplished and the rebels are uh, purged and gone, then he will call 10% of his church, his faithful, to come and build. Then it will be a time of peace. He says in Haggai, in this place I will bring peace. And he's speaking of this area that we are in. Peace will come. It will be a time of peace. But now it is a time of war. War against Satan, war against the world, and war against those who would put us out and take over. And we cannot, in good conscience, allow that. We must stand up and fight. But we need the whole armor of God to use to fight that. I didn't mention the announcements, and word has probably gotten around, but uh, this lawsuit that has been filed against the church and against me, well, it's against the church and me, and you as members of the church. Uh, they tried to get rid of our lawyers, and we had to wait a while, and the judge reviewed it, and he threw that request out in its entirety. So we uh, are able to retain the lawyers that we have had. Now, we did not go to the world, worldly lawyers, uh, God says, don't do that. They went to them, and they filed suit against us. We are merely defending ourselves in the only way that we can at this point, other than God's direct intervention, which I know will eventually come. But in the meantime, uh, it would have been very expensive and time-consuming to have to break in a whole other set of lawyers and get them up to speed with what's going on in this case. Uh, these others are already pretty much up to speed on it. So I feel that that was a blessing God gave us, is able to retain the, the counsel we already have. And uh, every request that they made about that has been denied. So that's good news. But it is a time of war, and we better realize we're in a war. What profit, verse 9, has he that works in that wherein he labors? That's a good question to ask of a human workforce. What, what, what do we get out of what we work for? What do we accomplish? 
I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of man to be exercised or stretched or pulled or pushed or tried with. Exercise uh, of, let's say, a human muscle can create pain. And they even have the expression, feel the pain, feel the burn. Because for that muscle to get stronger, it has to be worked out. Otherwise, it gets softer and more flaccid and atrophies. So, God has given us travail. That's what this life is all about. It's what it's supposed to be about. For our own good in the long run. But we are to be pushed and pulled and tried and tested in this life is what it's all about. From the time they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, life was supposed to be hard. Have you noticed that God's prophecies get fulfilled? (laughs) Have you found life to be easy and everything you want taken care of and everything you think you need? and desire easily obtained, and even emotional happiness and security and all those things that a human being desires. Uh, Has that come easy? What about growing old? Isn't it fraught with peril and difficulty and pain and suffering and difficulties of every kind? Yeah, God made it so that life would be difficult, And then it would get worse as we get toward the end of it and would end in suffering and pain. But that's the purpose that he set up. So, when those scriptures appear where he says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, and through much tribulation enter the kingdom, and all of those, we should take heart in that what God told us would be is... The trouble, the difficulty, and the pain that we suffer is what God told us would be, and for our good. Now, it doesn't always seem to be for our good, does it? We've all lost loved ones. We've all faced pain and suffering of one kind or another. And it isn't easy. It isn't fun. But it's all designed to get us to realize that we don't want to live temporarily and in this life and in a a world dominated by Satan. We are here to learn that Satan's way of life and rebellion against God is a frightful, horrible way to live. And that Satan's rulership of this world today has created a frightful, unenviable, miserable existence. The more and more we've gone Satan's way, through violence, through misuse and abuse of the things that God has put here on this earth, the natural things, we've ruined, we've spoiled. And we've started eating chemicals instead of nutritional, natural things that God has given. And now we are a society and a world that is full of diabetes and heart disease and cancer and Uh, a myriad other diseases of Egypt which God said he would bring on us in the end time so life was intended to be tough so if you think you got it tough just realize God said it would be this way it is a prophecy fulfilled 
and we need to joy in our tribulations. That's hard to do, but that's Scripture, isn't it? So when trouble comes, we know it's part of the plan of God. Look at all the trouble that that Job had. I mean, everything went wrong. So that he lost all his kids, he lost all his wealth, he lost all his cattle, he lost his health, and was sitting in the midst of a of boils that gave him unimaginable pain and his friends turned against him and finally his wife said just curse God and die <laughs> there's, there's support for you poor Job none of us have gone through what Job went through we just haven't and he was a righteous man far more righteous than you and I are and probably ever will be in this, earth, in this life But he thought too much of himself and was self-righteous. He did not realize that he was idolizing his own righteousness. And God had to show him that, no, Job, compared to me, your righteousness is nothing. Nothing whatsoever. And when he got the picture, when he got the point, and realized that God is sovereign in all the universe and he didn't amount to anything then God was able to bless him again. So God's putting us through it all. And the story of Job is there for you and me. It's there for us to read and heed, lest we have to go through all the things that Job went through. So, Solomon is really making an important point here. God has given us all this travail to be stretched and tested and tried. So when you're being tried, you're being tested, even chastened, that shows that you're a son whom God loves. He only chastens the sons whom He loves, not the others. Their last plagues and their troubles coming. But those that He's working with to be part of the bride of Christ have to go through an awful lot in order to prepare them to be the bride of Christ. Verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in His time. Also, He has set the world in their hearts so that no man can find out the work that God makes from the beginning to the end. We were born on this earth, which God created as a wonderful, beautiful place to live. He even made the Garden in Eden, which had everything totally controlled. Temperature, food, rain, moisture... Everything was perfect. No bugs, no thorns, no flies, no mosquitoes. Everything was perfect. And that's the world that God created for us. But we listened to Satan from Adam and Eve at the very beginning. And the minute, the second they began to listen to Satan, everything turned bad. And it's been that way ever since. And we've reached a place now that God said we would come to. He says, woe to those that pollute the earth there in Revelation. And we have polluted it so badly that it is getting to the point man cannot sustain life on this earth. Both in the things we stick in our bodies and in our minds, and now even with our brilliant idea of having nuclear power, one failure and the whole Pacific Ocean is dying before our very eyes from that one little spot in Japan. 
and it is only the first of many, many woes that are to come. But he made everything beautiful in its time. And he made it such that that we could marvel at his creation and we could not even grasp the beginning of it or the end of it. We look at what we have around us, the mountains and the valleys and the canyons and all the things that are here. And people come up with all these stupid ideas about how it got here and what its origins were. And it's more than we can fathom, isn't it? And what he is about to do with the earth and the universe is beyond our capacity to fathom. So he put us here in a limited role so that we cannot even understand everything that's around us to help us grasp that he is so much bigger than everything that we can see, feel, touch, understand. So he set this world in our heart. Don't you love it? I do. I I love to get in the places that are the least spoiled by mankind the most beautiful that God created. I hate being in cities that man has built that are full of filth and vermin and violence and hate and animosity and fraud and deceit and lying and cheating and dog-eat-dog. I hate it. I love to be out in the world that God created and, and marvel at it. And I still can't grasp it from the beginning to the end. So he put us in a place that with our sin and Satan's rebellion would be a tough place to live, and yet even above that, it's an unfathomable, beautiful place. Verse 12, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. We are not good by nature. We are evil and deceitful in our hearts. So he says, the best thing you can do is rejoice in the life that God gave you, and do good. Do good to who? To others. That's, that's what good is and is for, is toward others. So rejoice in what God has given you and just do good. Christ expressed it a little differently. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't take credit for what you're doing. I saw, uh, oh, just a news blurb that uh, that captive, can't say his name, that was just released from North Korea and then died the next day. Uh, now you got Dennis Rodman, the basketball player with all the tattoos, uh, who's taking credit for getting the man released. Well, okay, and maybe he had did have some part in getting the man released. I don't know. But does it fit Scripture? God says if we do good deeds, if we do good works, if we do things, we're not even to acknowledge them ourselves, much less brag about them to anybody else. Even our own right hand and our own left hand is not to know what the other is doing. I mean, you can't consciously do something without your brain and your hand uh, in coordination. I understand that. And sometimes whatever you're doing requires both hands. But the point is a principle, is that you are to be so busy doing good and helping others and not taking any credit for it. Just build treasure in heaven. Don't try to build it in other people's minds and emotions. 
Don't even do it in your own mind. Where you sit back and say, Oh boy, I did so and so such a good service today and I helped so and so. We're not to gloat. We're not to brag. We're not to take credit. We're just to do it because it's there to be done and be thankful to God that we could do it and understand that everything good we do is treasure in heaven. And there are scriptures which even indicate that if we take credit for it here, we lose the eternal benefit. That it isn't counted for righteousness, but counted for vanity and ego. If you mark in your mind and keep score, your right hand or your left hand, of the good that you do. It all goes to nothing and void because it becomes vanity and ego instead of treasure in heaven that has no ego, that is done out of humble desire to serve and to do good in this life that God gave us. So we have to be very, very careful in our own minds in how we react to even the good that can be done. And rejoice and be thankful for the life that you do have and the period of time that you are here. Also, verse 13, that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Can you labor? Can you work? Can you earn enough to eat and to drink and not go hungry and not be cold and just be thankful for what we do have. In this nation, there is so much abundance that it's hard not to eat and drink. Given here, very poor uh, circumstances in this nation. But for the most part, the government still gives them food. So they have food to eat. They have things to drink. And we have not known the poverty that Solomon is talking about here. Uh, in this nation. We have been so blessed, but we have desecrated and misused and not given God credit for anything that we have. We are a godless nation, and it's going to begin to show. But if we can be in a position where we can work and eat and drink, that's the gift of God. And the time is coming where it will have to be a gift of God. To all those who heavy labor and cannot survive, God tells them, come and have wine and milk without money. In Isaiah 54 or 5. Verse 14, I know that whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God does it, that men should fear before Him. He holds the keys to eternal life, and I think that's hinted here. <coughs> anything we do is not forever. It's for 70 years, plus or minus. That's the end of it. God does things forever. His plan and His purpose that He is fulfilling in you and me right now is a purpose that will last forevermore. No pain, no sorrow, no trouble, no death, no tears, forevermore. That's where it's headed. And nobody, nobody can do anything about it. 
if we do what we're supposed to do here and overcome and grow and serve God with our hearts, He has promised us life eternal with no pain or suffering. And nobody can stop it. Satan can't stop it. Man can't stop it. It's something God is doing. And He's working salvation in you and me. And we're the only ones that can take our name out of the book of life at this point. It's guarded carefully by God. Satan can't take you out of it. The only way you can get out is if you allow Satan or people or others to pull you away from God. That's the only way you can lose out at this point. If you overcome and grow and don't let any force, any power, pull you away from where you're headed. Be like Jacob. Hang on to Christ with all your heart, mind, body, soul, nerve, energy, and muscle. And don't ever let him go in any way or let a bit of bitterness come in. Because the moment bitterness ends, or I mean enters, it begins to spoil everything. You can't put a little bit of bitter in a glass of water and not have it go through the whole glass. James put it, you can't have sweet and bitter water coming out of the same spring. It just can't be, because the bitterness will take, will go permeate the whole thing. Same with the loaf and the leavening that's used at Passover time. A little leaven will leaven the whole loaf, it'll go through the whole thing, and you can't stop it. Once it started, it just goes there. That's why he says to stay away from sinners and not to have anything to do basically with this world and the sinners that are in it. That our friendship and our fellowship, as John put it in 1 John, is with the Father and the Son and each other. It is not with the world. Our fellowship is with God and His people. We're ambassadors to the world. To be a light and to shine to the world as godly people. But we are not to be involved with the world. We are to get away from it because that sin and that bitterness can pull us away from God. So God does things forever. And if we want to live forever, we have to keep forever in mind. Whatever God's doing, don't add to it or take from it. And even His Word, we're warned in Revelation uh, 21 or 2, I guess it is, uh, not to take from or add to it in any way, but to consider the entirety of it in our lives. Verse 15, That which has been is now, and that which is to be has already been. And God requires that which is past. Again, there is nothing new under the sun. Well, he says that here. I, moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, the wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. So, no matter what, on this earth there's only been one totally righteous individual, and that was Christ the Son of God himself. So, where there is good judgment, where there is proper judgment, there will also uh, be some wickedness. And you can go to the most righteous place there is on the earth, and there will be a certain amount of iniquity and sin there. <coughs> so no matter how righteous 
we might be, there's not a perfect place on this earth. There's not a perfect church. There's not a perfect congregation. There's not a perfect person. And if we start trying to judge one another and uh, imagine and keep the sins of others, uh, then we're in trouble. Because God says He's the judge. He's the one who makes those decisions. He's the one who judges evil and good. It's not our job to judge one another. Thankfully, God judges us all. So, anything that you see has already happened before. And anything that is in the future has been done in the past. So there's nothing new. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. So there's going to be righteousness and there's going to be wickedness and iniquity and sin in every body and in every group. You can't get away from it. But he reiterates that God is the judge. He's the one who makes the judgments. It's already said. He's the one who creates and does things that are forever. Everything we do is temporary and vanity and ego and selfishness. So we have to consider that God's purpose is being worked out. And we need to be very, very careful with one another, brethren, and those around us. We need to be very careful because everyone here has been called to understand the things of God. Every one of us. No man, not any, can come and understand the things of the Spirit unless the Spirit of the Father draw them. So consider that God is doing a work in every one of us here. Every one of us. And it's His job. He's our overseer. He's our boss. He's our judge. He's the one that either confers or abstains from conferring eternal life. He will give us eternity to live or we'll die in a lake of fire if we don't overcome. And this is our time now. How, brethren, how do we have time to worry about anyone else's sin? How do we? Now Christ said we need to be so busy getting the beam out of our eye that we don't have time or energy to get the mote out of somebody else's eye. That's the words of Christ Himself. So when we sit around and we talk about others and we point out their sins or what we think are their sins or suppose are their sins, or imagine are their sins, we're going absolutely contrary to the way of God and the law of God and the Word of God and the mind of God. It's not our job to ferret out, to find, to contemplate sin in others. It's not our job. It is an honor and a glory to God 
to forgive and to hide sin. But the Proverbs say it is the glory of kings, or of human beings, to find sin. Just the opposite of God. He does not seek sin. He does not look for sin. He deals with it when he finds it in us. <clears throat> and, but he is the judge, and we are not. So why do we have opinions and pigeonholes in places where we put people in our minds and emotions? Not our job. It's just not. We are God's children. Have you ever noticed how people really get uptight if you start criticizing their children? Oh boy, can people get upset if you criticize their children. They want to think their children are God's gift to humankind. And the minute you start criticizing anybody's kids, they get uptight in a hurry. They're ready to fight. Now, we're God's kids. And you know what God said about him? He said he is a jealous God. Christ is very, very jealous of the bride that he is preparing to be his wife throughout all eternity. And we are candidates to be that bride. Now, Christ gets very upset when we criticize his wife. He doesn't like that one whit. He is a jealous Bridegroom, And our Father is a jealous Father. And we need to take that very deeply into consideration when we open our big fat mouth to criticize one of God's children. We might be stepping on God's toes when we do that. Can we grasp that? Can we internalize that? Can we begin to understand there is a time to speak and a time to shut up and not be negative about God's children? He says, does he not, to speak of those things which are good and upright and positive and uplifting, Philippians 4.8? Doesn't he say that? And doesn't he tell us not to deal with the negative? And if we are negative in our approach to life and people, we need to repent and change it? Not just continue to let the gossip drivel out of our miserable, wretched, deceitful, angry, upset, bitter, negative human minds. It's time to repent of the way we treat God's children and the bride-to-be of Christ. If we can't do that, we will not be a part of the bride. God will not have that in His kingdom. There will be peace. There will not be war and jealousy and jockeying for position and trying to be an elder or trying to be a deacon or trying to be a preacher or trying to be richer or trying to be greater or trying to be more in control or in charge or any of the things where we try to put ourselves above others. He tells us, seek the lowest seat. You know what? When the resurrection comes and 144,000 people rise off the face of the earth, 
you know what should happen? If there's 144,000 chairs set up on the sea of glass before the throne of God, there's going to be one down in the lowest bottom corner because that's the only way you can set chairs up. And there should be 144,000 people clamoring for that corner seat furthest from the throne. Isn't that what Christ said? To humble ourselves and not seek the chief seats, not try to be above anybody else, not try to make our influence greater over someone or be in control or in charge. Didn't he say to be humble and to be meek? And if you go to a banquet, sit at the lowest chair. And if the ruler of the banquet bids you forward to sit in a better seat, then get up and go where you're bid. I'm going to play musical chairs with all of you. I'm going for that furthest one away from the throne. I'm going to park my butt right in it if I get a chance. Now, if God wants me three rows up from there, that's His business. But I'm going to fight you for that bottom corner. And I need to be fighting you for it right now. We need to all be fighting for the lowest position. We need to all be fighting for the most service and to show the most love and kindness. Did you ever read the fruits of the Spirit of God there in Galatians? Did you see in any of those people trying to put themselves above others, trying to make their opinion more important than somebody else's, trying to vaunt themselves, trying to uh, exalt themselves. Was there anything in the fruits of the Spirit about envy and jealousy and war and strife and fighting and infighting? Not a bit. Nothing. The fruit of the Spirit go along the lines of love and joy and peace, patience, long-suffering, not quick to judge, not quick to condemn, but always willing and ready to forgive. Always ready to forgive. Just chomping at the bit to forgive. That's what Christianity is all about. God is the greatest forgiver in the universe. He loves to forgive. He loves to get rid of sin. He sent His Son to save sinners, not righteous. So the moment we judge ourselves righteous and put ourselves in a place that we can judge sinners, we have become satanic. We are totally divorced from the attitude and the mind of God. <clears throat> you need to coach yourself day in and day out to be quick to forgive, to be quick to overlook, to be quick to give credit, to give, be quick to excuse others. Now, how are we doing? There's room to grow. We need to be like Christ. And forgiveness is one of His greatest attributes. And that's the way he wants his wife to be. Well, God's working out a purpose in you and me, and boy, we had better not get in his way of working with 
any of his children. We'd better be very, very careful. I said in my heart, verse 18, concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. He looked at us and said, Don't we all do the same thing beasts do? We die. For that which befalls the sons of men befalls beasts. Every, even one thing befalls them all. As the one dies, so dies the other. We're no different than a horse or a cow or a goat or a sheep or a bird. We die the same way and we rot dust to dust. Verse 20, all go to one place. All are of the dust and all turn to dust again. So, it's appointed to us all to die. Just like the animals do. And we rot and stink, and if we don't stick somebody underground, the coyotes eat them. And <clears throat> the ravens and the vultures. And the, the bugs and the weevils, and not the weevils, the, the maggots and so on. We're all the same as the beasts. All go to one place and turn to dust. Who knows the spirit of man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth? Herbert Armstrong was converted man for decades before he grasped this verse. That there is a spirit in man, a different uh, way that the human mind is put together that animals don't have. Now, science would tell you that we all crawled out of the sea and are all the same. Uh, We just evolved a little higher than some others or lower, depending on how you look at the way we run things. Uh, But God says, no, there is a spirit that he put in man that is different than that of the animals. And when we die, that spirit goes back to God who gave it. And it is, in a way, like a recording of your life, your character, the way you are, the way you think. And it's placed there inert, doesn't think, doesn't, it isn't conscious, because the dead know nothing. But it's there, a record of you and what you were. And when you die, that goes to God in heaven. And it's preserved there until the time of the resurrection. Now, considering that everything you are and have been and everything you think is a part of your demeanor, your character, your approach, the look on your face... And the things in your heart will be there as a record. Consider what you want on that record and what you don't want on that record. And if you've done things you don't want on that record, you need to be repenting of them as fast as possible so that they are wiped out and are not part of the record. Because God says He will put our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. I don't care what people think about me at this point. You know that? I really could care less. I don't give a hoot. I have been put down and thought evil of by the whole church and this church enough that it really doesn't matter. I could care less what people think about me. I am only concerned with what God thinks of me. Now, once in a while, I might have my feelings hurt a little bit or get upset about what somebody thinks or says about me. So I won't say that that's an entirely uh, 
is entirely the situation. But overall, I really care what God thinks. And I go to Him, and I ask for His forgiveness and His mercy. And if I please Him, then hopefully I'll please mankind. But you know the people who have pleased God the most have pleased man the least? Do you recognize that in history and in the Bible? Look at all the priests and the prophets. Look at all the leaders that God chose throughout all mankind's history. And the ones that God chose and worked with were the ones that Israel, all Israelites, hated the most. It's the way it's always been. So, what difference does it make? We're here to please God, brethren. And it doesn't matter what men think of us. And the more we serve God and the more we obey Him, the more Satan will hate us and the more the world around us will hate us and more the vast majority of the church of God will hate us and discredit us. That's the way it is. So, get used to it. (laughs) It is what it is. It comes with the territory. So, I know what I've done in my life. I know what I haven't done in my life. And you know what? Nobody else does. Nobody else does. And my wife knew more than anyone else on earth, and now she's gone. So even what she knew was good or bad or indifferent or whatever about me is gone. doesn't matter. All that matters is what God thinks. That's all that matters for any of us. We're all going to die. We're all going dust to dust. And what God thinks of us, you know, He's the one that does the resurrecting. He's the one that gives eternal life. He's the one who gives all the judgment that is to be given. And what you think about somebody doesn't mean one damn thing. And I think I use that word advisedly. Damned means destroyed by God. In our opinion, and two dollars for a cup of coffee is all it means. Your opinion about anybody doesn't make one whit of difference. And neither does mine. God's opinion is everything. So who do we think we are to spout off about other people who are the children of God? You know what that is? It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. It's an abomination to God to speak evil of those that are His. We better understand that. Read Proverbs 6 if you don't believe it. Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his works, his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? We, we can't, even when we're alive, understand everything that's going to happen. We can read God's prophecies and have a somewhat grasp of it. But we don't know what's going to be after us. You know what your kids are going to do after you cork off? I don't. <laughs> you know? Are they going to be peaceful and war over the scraps we leave behind? Be peaceful or war over the scraps we leave behind? Who knows? We just do not know. So what we need to do is be serving God with all our heart and being forgiving and kind and loving 
toward everyone that He has called and even love those in the world so much that we're willing to serve God with all our heart so that we might help Christ convert them in the millennium and the great white throne judgment. That's the greatest service we can do to this world right now is be part of the bride of Christ. And then we can benefit all mankind. So God's given you and me a great purpose and a great calling. And let's use it to His glory and to His honor and to the credit of His people because that's what we're here for today.